1: Hello, hello, and welcome to The news, which we usually do on Fridays, but if you're listening live, then you're listening on Thursday. And I should say, there's sort of a connection, too, to what we're about to talk about. Uh, our company does observe Juneteenth uh, as a company holiday, so we'll have a, a special on the air tomorrow in this spot uh, that is uh, connected to Juneteenth. Uh, and so is the first topic on the show today. Um, we're going to talk about High in the Hog, a remarkable four-part miniseries series Docu series, I guess they call them now, uh, on Netflix. It is about the contributions uh, and linkages between African food, the food uh, created on plantations. Uh, and the food that is eaten all across America today. In the second part of the show, uh, we're going to come back to last week's topic sooner than we expected to. Uh, In the Heights has now kind of uh, attracted a kind of sub-controversy, a uh, mini-controversy, or maybe a maxi-controversy. And and it involves kind of, I mean, for want of a better word, the pigmentation uh, of cast members um, and whether or not they're reflective of the predominantly Dominican Republic um, uh, community community In Washington Heights, a community, if you've been there, that's being nibbled away at by exactly the kind of gentrification that's dealt with in the movie and the play. Anyway, that is still to come. But let me tell you who's on the show. First of all, uh, on the nose today is uh, Rand Richards Cooper, a fiction writer contributing editor at Commonweal and restaurant critic for the Hartford Current, uh, Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of Nobody Asked Sean podcast. Uh, before I throw it to the panel, I also want to say, just do a kind of a shout out to my son. My, my son's the one who got me to watch this thing. And I don't really like food shows all that much. <laughs> and, and he said, and he was just, he had really, he'd watched the whole four part thing and we're sitting there and he goes, "Now you really should watch this. And he got me to watch episode three because he knew I would be specifically interested in that. And then I was hooked and we went back and we did 1 2 and 4. I don't really recommend doing them out of order. But um uh and so thanks to him he's now watched the whole thing all over again just so that I would watch it with him. Uh and and, and he's right. Uh, I, at least I think so. It's really remarkable. But so Sean Murray, I think uh, you like me uh, around the time that we were agreeing that this would be a good topic, you, you'd already seen uh, High in the Hog. And I don't know, if you were trying to describe it to uh, to a friend, maybe uh, for the purposes of, of interesting the friend in the series, what would you say
2: about it? I would say it's a well, you describe it as, you know, a look at the contributions of African-Americans to um, American dining. But I think it's also a look at like the history of African-Americans through dining, not just like what we've contributed to um, American dining. But like like you can kind of tell the story of the African diaspora in America through our cooking, even in ways that like I wasn't aware of, like, you know, certain things you're going to pick up on just by being African-American. Uh, but like, there's a lot of stuff I learned in the show that I didn't even know before. like I didn't even know how significant the rice uh, crop was in like I think it was Charleston. Um, yes. and, like like most of the the early um, rich uh, wealthy people in America came from from rice uh, plantations, which was fascinating.
1: Right. Raised plantations and a kind of agriculture that had been very specifically, almost literally transplanted from from Africa. Yeah. So, Rand, you're the food guy uh, and you're also somebody who's lived in Africa. Um, I don't know. Just give us sort of consider your initial dig. Let's say you were pitching this series to one of your friends. Here, well, here's why you should watch it. What would you say?
3: Well, I would say, first of all, that this that this series is going to speak to you personally. It's almost inevitably it spoke to me personally, even though arguably in ways that are interesting not primarily intended for me but to me it sparked very particular memories a, a taste memory of a southern restaurant i've been bombarding you guys with stories about that a restaurant in new york city that i loved in my young adulthood and it was a sort of aspirational restaurant for me. Memories of my mother, who had traveled to Low Country in, in, in uh, South Carolina. She loved to cook. And she came back. And for years, she cooked fish dal an island that is mentioned in the series. And I can just, my, my mother died 12 years ago. I can still hear her saying, I'm making fish dal fusky. Um, so for me, really, the, the, the concept in which I'd love to talk about this is, is food as memory. Memory is a very personal thing and food can bring us back to our childhoods and families. Some of my favorite food writers, M.F.K. Fisher, A.J. Liebling, Edna Lewis, who I wanna talk about later, um, they work this connection between food and memory and childhood. But the second part of this, and the other appeal that this series makes is to to memory more broadly construed, which is a collective thing, the memory of a people, of of an ethnicity. And finally, there's the kind of official collective memory that's history, and that's where um, this, th- th- this documentary really engages in an interesting way, because history as this documentary is is very much aware is something that you have to kind of make it into or you risk being permanently forgotten. And I, I see the second part of this, uh, not the second part in part four, but the second mission of this. The first part is to present a bunch of great food and I'd love us to be able to, to talk just about how scrumptious this thing is. <laughs> but the second part represents a conscious effort to augment and, and correct a historical record whose memory is, uh, is incomplete um, or defective. And so I, I think those are the two points for me. They both relate to memory, uh, beautiful, beautiful food that appeals to every person, but then also a black host speaking specifically with black culinary practitioners in a project of cultural appreciation and restoration really.
1: Yeah, we should talk about that host, so because we've been talking about him uh, getting ready for the show too. Steven Satterfield is a guy who really hasn't been in front of TV cameras much, if at all, before. He's a food writer. He's a former sommelier. Uh, he's got his own media company now. Uh, he he actually was contacted about this show without realizing that they wanted him uh, wanted to at least, at least consider him as the host. He thought he was just being you know consulted about stuff, and 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 he brings. I think we are all struck by this, and and I should just say so I don't forget that one of the first people one of the first people you meet along with Satterfield is the other person who's really kind of at the heart of the show, Jessica B. Harris, uh, who is the author of a book called High on the Hog: A Culinary Journey from Africa to America. It's the foundational text for the idea of this series. But but Sean Satterfield is interesting. I mean, he's like the anti Bourdain or Stanley Tucci. He doesn't really play to the camera. He has—he's uh, a very kind of self-contained guy, I think, in a lot of ways, but but he has—he has a nice way, I think, uh, of bouncing the, the the spotlight onto the guests, the food, the the, the place, and just kind of being a, a placeholder for us, maybe.
2: Absolutely, yeah. It, it, it sort of feels like he's aware of his limitations as a host. Like he knows he hasn't been on, on in front of camera much before, so he's letting the story tell itself, but in, let, let him the the chefs and cooks and um, just the people he meets in Africa and here in America, like tell their stories rather than trying to like front load himself into the, the show, which is actually great because he's, um, he does a good job of like, he's very dry and understated, which serves well, especially in like some of like the, the heavier, like uh, moments of like historical, um, like reckoning or whatever uh so it works but like you said he is sort of the anti, uh, anti-bourdain where it's like bourdain like the, he brings so much passion and like energy to his show where this show i, I was having a conversation with someone i was like this guy's super dry and then the person was like this is probably what it needs though you know what i mean mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't need a bourdain type of energy which i, I could appreciate
1: I think so. Before I get ran on this, I want to just let you hear a little bit of the voice of uh, Stephen uh, Satterfield. Uh, This is uh, a little bit of kind of how he narrates. I think a lot about food, how
0: it connects us through time, across geography. So good. From generation to generation. It tells stories about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. Are you familiar with the phrase, high on the hog? Yes, I am. Can you see it already smells like mac and cheese? The truth is, a lot of American food has its roots in African-American food, traditions, and ingenuity. I'm Steven Satterfield. I'm a food writer who studied as a chef and worked as a sommelier for over a decade. And I'm on a journey to uncover the stories of African-American food and meet the new generation preserving our history. This one's uh, off of Carolina Gold Rice. We've broken the rice down and made rice grits. From the earliest days through the darkest decades of struggle, we persevered. Despite the fact that we were in hell, we were suffering, somehow in all of that nonsense, we created a cuisine. These are our stories.
1: So, Rand not only is Satterfield uh, kind of our our eyes and ears and nose in these situations, but he's very specifically our mouth in these situations too. In the sense that you know, we watch him eat stuff that he hasn't eaten before. We watch him savor it, uh, and, and he kind of is our guide in that way too
3: right um you know if it, it, it first it, it might be worthwhile to very quickly sketch in the four uh, part structure because he has a lot to get through the first takes place in africa he goes back to benin a major uh, port of the of the slave trade and he talks to people who are involved in restaurants and cooking there the part two is a kind of corrective version of our uh, the culinary scene of our founding fathers and focuses on two chefs one uh the personal chef for washington the other for jefferson jefferson sort of sort of a culinary correction of the founding father myth part three goes to the low country of south carolina the gola island culture fascinating to me that's the part that you started out with. And I'm, I've am i been very interested in, in, in that cooking and cuisine for a long time. And part four goes to Texas and sort of segues into Juneteenth, talks about barbecue and takes a, an extensive sort of side trip into the history of the black cowboy. Very fascinating. So he's got a lot to do and he's economical in that way. He's patient. He struck me as unlike many chefs I know cause he's, he, he's not opinionated. Um, and as far as the tasting goes, a lot of the times, I didn't feel we were typically getting like a much of a trained chef perspective. He was more just like us, you know. So the food on display is fabulous. And it is like, do not watch this show if if you're hungry. My particular favorites was a one on Da Fusky Island where a young woman includes a chicken. Uh, she cooks chicken turnip greens and this hickory smoked beet cornbread, which is gorgeous, and then in the Founding Chef segment, he goes, I think, to Monticello, and they do this hearth cooking. And he, and a chef there, a black chef, makes a veal sweetbread with crab mushrooms and sherry cream sauce. And and Stephen Satter, Satterfield, he tastes these dishes and mostly he just says, oh, my God, this is really good. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's what we would be saying. Um, I. I, I first found his ingenuousness, his, his, his earnestness to be not, not off-putting, but I sort of wanted more forceful presence from him. But I gradually was won over to the sense that, no, this is actually kind of the optimal way to bring in to the, us in to the very multifaceted experience that he has to cover.
1: Yeah, I, I could be wrong about this because I did walk, watch it uh, out of sequence, but I'm pretty sure it goes African roots, rice, then founding chefs, than uh, Juneteenth and and the Cowboys. Uh, But in any case, yeah, I mean, Sean, we should say something about this first episode. First of all, um, he's in Benin, but he's not even just in Benin. He's in this, I don't know, just like completely sort of magical place that's on—it's like the Venice uh, of Africa or something. It's sitting on water. Uh, and you go from place to place in, in in canoes and little boats and stuff like that. Uh, but there's also this real, you know, supreme moment of reckoning. It's really the time where Satterfield's composure breaks, you know, and, when as he spends some time kind of in this almost physical gateway to slavery. And and I I've, it was a really really powerful scene. I, I I I don't know what you made of it. It was
2: it was very powerful and. um Part of, like, the fact that he hasn't been on camera, initially it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because it, it seemed like he was being... That was the, the one time I felt like he was being disingenuous. It felt like he felt like he needed to be super emotional. Like, um, we were talking um, in the email about how he's sort of... Uh, everything he says is sort of like, this is a very spiritual experience. And he had said that so many times before that that by the time he said it at that scene, which is probably the most spiritual Moment of the entire show, it almost felt disingenuous to me, but I could tell it was real. Mm. But he seemed like he he felt like he needed to cry. But that moment was incredible. Just being at like the like the the the, the point like literally the point of no return for uh, most slaves. Like they would uh they'd never come back to Africa. They that's where they left from. And I thought it was amazing to like like they had to remove their shoes and they were walking on it and just feeling like the the history. Uh, a lot of people talk about stuff like that when they, like, I can feel the history in this place. And, like, that is one of the few times where, when someone says that what I actually believed it.
1: Oh No, absolutely. And, and Ryan, you know, I, I know that you did relate quite a bit to that rice segment and to the Gulagichi uh, culture. We also are—, are uh Actually introduced to the Gichi Gulo Ring Shouters, who I think appear on every single episode, or their, their singing appears uh, in, in every single uh, episode. But uh, say a little bit more uh, about what moved you about the the rice segment.
3: Well, so a- along these lines, I would recommend for, for anyone who was interested in that segment in particular, is a terrific film, a fictional film, feature film, 1990, I think. By uh, a filmmaker named Julie Dash called "Daughters of the Dusk," and it's a historical film set in the early part of the 20th century uh, on those islands. And it's in part an ethnography of Gullah life. And and she said um when describing that film, I wanted to do a film that was so deeply. And she, her family was originally from there. She said I wanted to do a film that was so deeply embedded in this culture, and so authentic that. It felt like a foreign film, and when when you watch Daughters of the Dusk, um, you, what was, what what got me about that film is the things that, in passing, create the sort of foreign country of the past, and a lot of those uh, were things that she went back a hundred years to show as continuities between Africa, that that lost. Ancestral home and the way people were living around 1900. Basket weaving, a boy with cheek scarification. We see that in one of in in one of uh, Satterfield's hosts when he's in in Benin. Uh, the use of mortar and pestle. Uh, in addition to rice, the other industry was was indigo, and so we we see uh, indigo production. Um, guys playing this board game called uh, mbao with stones and and a, and a series of cups set into a wooden board. That's very prevalent in Africa. Um, and and so uh, this this storytelling with 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 dance and lots of food preparation is this conscious effort by a filmmaker in 1990 to reach back to a past or uh, an African American past already a century old a time when people themselves were struggling to remember further back uh, into into the midst of a place that they had been forcibly separated from. One of the things I loved about this this series is we see through these juxtapositions. Um, continuities, some of which are culinary, some of which are are cultural. They have the the there's a very long, extraordinary long segment of a of a Texas high school marching band toward the end. And a little bit you wonder like, why are we seeing this much of you know the major, the the drum majors dancing? And then you know, you, you realize that the juxtaposition of that with the African dancers that we've seen, you know, is is charting like this cultural echo. And that echo also happens in the food, the roots of gumbo um are in the african word for okra there are other foods that aren't mentioned like the puerto rican dish mofongo which comes from african fufu so i i think one thing i loved about that episode and and generally is is this the, the way that um the makers of this documentary you know work work hard to establish both the reality of and the importance of these cultural and culinary links to to a to a deep To a deep cultural background and that's part of what uh, this project of restoration that goes on in this series
1: yeah uh, i do want to bring up because it's awkward and i like awkward things that probably the most famous uh, american right now of Gullah extraction or uh, Gullah past is clarence thomas uh who i believe grew up speaking the Gullah tongue um and uh i mean maybe not the guy that we sort of like to associate with all these things but but there you have it you know I, i one of the things that I, I've been running into a lot lately, uh, Sean, is something that, that Satterfield talks about in interviews, which is that he wanted to make – and, and he, he's pleased that High in the Hog is – a celebratory – uh, a moment. It, it, it's it, it's obviously it, it doesn't shirk the past. It doesn't ignore the past. But you know, it's very much the story of of, of beautiful people who. Well, I'll, I'll read his quote. He goes, "I want people to perceive it as celebratory." Oftentimes, when our shows get made, when our stories get told, when our food gets talked about, it's the hardship story. I don't even mean celebrating resilience. I mean, look at all these beautiful black people moving uninhibited. Unencumbered in a centuries-long tradition of how we convene, shape culture, celebrate, make a living. This has always been part of our tradition as a diasporic people descending from the continent of Africa. And there's, you know, there's a way in which I, I mean, I I had just gotten through uh, listening to to. Zarin Burnett's uh, series, Black Cowboys, where he basically says the same thing. It's that, you know, he and his his father brought him up saying, yes, it's important to know the the slavery narrative, but it's also important not to get stuck in that. It's important to look at what happened afterwards, ways in which, you know, people went forward and, and claimed their own destiny in different ways. And, and I do think, you know, as we're going through this large, long, important national reckoning, that I'm hearing that more and more, particularly from from uh, Black creative people.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, it comes up a lot with a lot of uh, Black people I speak to and I just see online. And I t- totally understand it, but I think part of that, like the the history of like m- a lot of our stories being told through trauma is that those are the stories that were deemed important. You know, like, like for a long time you couldn't, like even up to a few years ago, like um, you couldn't really make a, a Black movie that... Like got like real critical recognition that didn't really deal with trauma. Like, there's, there's been stories and movies and shows out there that that are celebratory, but they it, it's usually the ones that are like treated as like like oh Emmy worthy or Oscar worthy or, or like Roots or like Twelve Years a Slave or even um, Barry Jenkins' Col- uh, Underground Railroad. That's yeah. uh, got a lot of critical acclaim. It, it's very few opportunities that Black people, I feel, have had. Uh, throughout history, to have something that feels important, but is also not necessarily about like this is how hard it's been for us, but rather um, this is what it's like to be black, or this is just like a, you know a day. That's why I love like you know Spike Lee gets a lot of um, love for Do the Right Thing, rightfully so, probably the best movie of the 25th, uh, 20th, 20th century. But Spike Lee had a lot of like fun movies. He had uh, School Days, you know. He had um, I can I'm, I'm blanking right now on others, but you know his, his movies weren't always all that, but. Sometimes those are the ones that get respected. The, the Malcolm Xs in the which also should have uh, won Denzel Washington Best Actor, but we'll get into that another time. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's uh, I feel like I I love to see it though. I love to see that um, something like High on the Hog is getting a lot of uh, eyes on it, and it's not necessarily just the the heaviness of that first episode. It's also stuff like. Um even even in the heaviness, you know, the stuff about like Hercules and um I can't remember, um Hemings. I can't James, uh, Yeah,
1: James Hemmings. It's Hercules. James Hemings. Hercules Posey, I think, and James uh, Hemmings are the two chefs of the president's tell that story though.
2: Oh yes, um those uh James Hemmings, uh was uh, the chef uh at uh, Monticello. Um he was brought uh to France to learn how to uh cook like uh like in the French brigade sort of system by Thomas Jefferson and um He came back, and he—I mean—he taught even a lot of um, uh, recipes, uh, like sort of um, like macaroni and cheese is credited to uh, him dating back to uh, his time at Monticello. And then Hercules was um, George Washington's uh, chef at um, uh, on—I think it was on Martha's Vineyard or um, Mount Vernon—and he a lot of Martha Washington's recipes. They believe that are are. Actually, recipes that Hercules um, uh, created and were credited Mar- to Martha, Martha Washington because, of course, they would be. Um, but even in those stories like that, like it, it, there's a heaviness to it. Like James Hemings had to teach his younger brother to be to cook as well as he could so he can to to in order to have his freedom. But even in those stories, you have the celebra- celebration of like, wow, this guy, this slave, created macaroni and cheese, one of the most beloved dishes in America right now. So it's like, or you know, basically created it more or less. Um, and it's, that's amazing. So even in those moments where it's like something, some super super heavy, or like Hercules like sneaking off of the plantation um, while there was a big party at, at uh, George Washington's estate to get his freedom, it's like that's that's sucks that it had to be that way. But it's amazing that this guy was able to escape to New York and live out his life, you know, just being a chef in New York City. It's amazing.
1: Right. There's a there's a little. Populian through line uh, from this to the the thing we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes uh, in the sense that George Washington who you know gets very very, very favorable treatment in Hamilton um, doesn't get such favorable treatment here and some things about him are, are made clear to me uh, and uh, in a way that I hadn't fully previously understood uh, how vindictive he could be. Um, so, you know, we're going to run out of time here, and there's so much more that I, I want to talk about, Talk about, and I feel bad. But, but, Rand, I mean, one of the things that's important to say is that uh, although, you know, this series looks, yes, at the roots, uh, to use the word, uh, of the cooking, it also <laughs> really goes into just... High, high-end cuisine, high-end cuisine. It ends with this uh, fabulous dinner in Houston, but all the way through, we're just watching these these black chefs now who are doing just amazing things at, at beautiful, luxuriant-looking restaurants, and also being reminded that this didn't just happen in the last just in the last ten or twenty years. This has been going on for a while. There were, you know, there's there's a there's a, a, a consistent history to this kind of cooking. But I don't know whether you want to tell the story of Jezebel, but I no, I, think we ought- I, I, Look, I will yeah. okay.
3: because it's- I think a real point of of Satterfield to make the point that that you just made. And when he interviews that family of of many generations of of Black caterers in Philadelphia and shows how upscale their past was, you know, a hundred years ago, the notions like that are are intended to, you know, carve out a space for an understanding of Black history that that many people, uh, white and Black themselves, don't have Um, And a a point along those lines is that, hey, Southern cooking is more than just like, you know, really homey comfort food. And I recall when I was just out of college in the mid 80s and I I was living in New York and trying to be a writer and I had I lived on 45th Street and I had no money at all. And uh, there was a restaurant down the block at the corner of 45th and 9th called Jezebel It was a Southern restaurant. And there, and it was very upscale. And uh, there was, and I would see, you know, beautiful, beautifully dressed people. It seemed to have an exclusively black clientele, almost, going in and out of there. One time, I walked by, and I was trying to be, you know, a beginning writer. And Alice Walker was having a publication party there. The, the kitchen door was open always on on Forty Fifth Street, and I could not even come close to affording this restaurant. But I would walk as slowly as possible down the block and sort of linger and loiter right by the open kitchen door smelling the the inhaling the smell of onions peppers celery what, uh, what what's known as the holy trinity of southern cooking uh ham beans everything and it was like it smelled so good and it was almost like just standing there smelling it you know it was like eating a meal and my girlfriend and I saved up money like for 6 months we went there one night and it was a glamorous place full of beautiful people and and I savored You know, every bite of that meal with that special fixity of of appetite that comes with attaining something that you have aspired to. And this was my real, actually, you know, my early mid-20s, my first real taste of Southern cooking. And it was in a very glamorous black restaurant in in Manhattan. And if you um, just Google Jezebel Restaurant NYC, it closed about 15 years ago. There is a, a great obituary of Alberta Wright, the owner who is really considered a pioneer of, of Southern slash soul cooking in, 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 the, in, in Manhattan. And she's praised by Marcus Samuelson, the owner of one of my favorite restaurants, the, the Red Rooster in, in Harlem. And there's a picture there. And that's what I want you to look at. The picture, which is full of like palms and foliage and old lamps and antique furniture, conveys this sense of like a of a lush seductive rich beautiful world and i think there's some of that in you know that's that's also part of of Satterfield's mission in this uh in this documentary and I mean, I, totally,
1: appreciate I totally agree with that. I mean, my son got tired of me hearing uh, hearing me say, Look at that person. That person is amazing looking. Look at that dress. Look at the hair. Look at the. I mean, <laughs> just everybody in this thing <laughs> just looks amazing and is surrounded by amazing colors. And, and, and it really is this incredible visual feast uh, uh, in, in so many different ways. All right, we're, we really are out of time. We're going to have to segue over to our second Todd, topic. Can I ask you something? Are yeah, we yeah. going to do endorsements later? We are going to do endorsements. So hang okay, on to your endorsement. Right. We are, as always, going to do endorsements. So uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll talk about this kind of controversy-ish thing within the Heights. No, it's a real controversy. It's not ish at all. Welcome back. Uh, this is The Nose. Uh, it's a day early. Uh, joining us is Rand Richards Cooper, a fiction writer, a contributing editor at Commonweal, and the restaurant critic for the Hartford Current. Sean Murray is stand up comedian, writer, and the host of Nobody Asked Sean podcast. Um, so, uh, as we head into this next topic, I, I want to say in advance one of the things that we do on The Nose is we often book the panel not knowing all of the topics we're going to talk about. They usually know the top line thing. Like we knew it was going to be high on the hog, but we often don't know the other stuff. And until kind of almost the 11th hour. And so we didn't know we were going to talk about this. And I already uh, feel a little bit bad about talking about In the Heights last week without a Latinx panelist. We don't have a Latinx panelist again. Uh, so, and, but we're going to talk about this anyway. And, and it's also further complicated by the fact that I don't, you know, the two of us are white. But uh, it, it's, it's a controversy that you sort of can't step away from because it's been aired out in so many places. So just to kind of set it up in the Heights, of course, is the film adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, Broadway show uh, that preceded Hamilton. Um, it is a celebration uh, of Washington Heights. Uh, it, it is, uh, um, it, well, first of all, it's just a terrific, terrific uh, musical. Uh, even since last week, I've been sort of geeking out on the soundtrack a lot more and it just grows and grows on me. Uh, but it's coming for some real controversy and controversy because, in fact, the principals of the cast uh, are the ones who are Latinx uh, are, for the most part, light skinned. Uh, and Washington Heights is a place where the predominant Latinx culture is that of the Dominican Republic which would probably skew a little bit more towards uh, towards a more darker skinned uh, Latinx people so um, so this has been, on people's minds since the trailer came out. People, uh, cultural critics, particularly from the Latinx community, were beginning to worry about this, and then it's kind of blown up into a, a full-fledged furor, uh, and it's been <laughs> dealt with, I think, multiple times on National Public Radio this week, uh, and we're going to talk about it now. Um, so, Sean, I, I don't I don't even know what your take is on this, but I do know that you right away said you had one, So, so let's hear it.
2: I think, um, you know, people are saying, some people are saying that, you know, this is an overblown thing. And, um, you know, at least a movie like this got a, a chance to be made, which I agree with. And I loved In the Heights. I saw it uh, in theaters. It's my first movie back in theaters. I thought it was incredible. But I think it's a, it's a valid criticism. And it's um, Lin-Manuel Miranda issued an apology statement. Um, online and I thought it was a really well done apology but the the part of the apology that a lot of people have keyed in on is what he said is we'll try to do better in the future and these are comments, kind of, um, uh you know we just want to get the movie made and um we kind of didn't we just wanted to get the best people for the parts and we didn't really focus on that and it's like the problem is that the discussion isn't even being had in the rooms like with the cast and directors with the um with the director with the production whoever it's like you have to focus on like how do we reflect the true um, demographic uh, of this neighborhood, of this culture, because it is true. Like there's this tons of Dominican people who are my complexion and I'm a pretty dark skinned person and darker or somewhere around my complexion. And it's a, it's incredible not only to not just. To have the principal cast mainly be lighter skinned because that 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 is uh, has been an issue with in media with not only Latinx um uh productions but black productions. There's so many stories people talk about online online all the time where there's um a story like a, a novel written and it's like the 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 character is described as dark skinned and then when it's cast in Hollywood it's someone who's like Zendaya's complexion and she's a lovely actress and a lovely woman I'm sure but like. We need to be able to reflect like that. There are dark speaking people that exist uh, across Latinx cultures and, and black cultures. So many times the people who are put in um, like positions to really succeed are lighter skinned people. It's, it's, it's historical. And I, I think um, Lin-Manuel, Brenda, again, issued a, a pretty good apology. But the issue is this. These are conversations that need to come up earlier on because that way you avoid having to make an apology.
1: Right. Uh, By the way, people who are wondering about this have already seen it. Yes, Corey Hawkins, one of the actors, uh, is is, uh, black. He plays a non-Latinx character. It doesn't really tick the box uh, uh, of the Dominican Republic. Uh, So before we get to Rand, I also want to say that uh, Rita Moreno, who's uh, got her own... Uh, project coming out right now was on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. This came up uh, and uh, Rita Moreno, who I believe had to have her skin darkened, I think, for her role in uh, West Side Story or was darkened uh, for her role in West Side Story. Uh, here's uh, her take on it.
0: Can't you just wait a while and leave it alone? There's a lot of people who are Puerto Ricano who are also from uh, Guatemala who are dark and who are also fair? We are all colors in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. and uh, this is how it is. And I just—it would be so nice if they hadn't come up with that and left it alone, just for now. I mean, they're really—they're really, they're really attacking the wrong
1: person. Well. Well, this did not go over well with the people who are already upset about this. Um, so, um, so Rand, you and I are kind of, you know, out on a limb here. Anyway, I'm not sure what two white guys really, you know, have to say about this that can can be made useful. But uh, we're, I think, both going to give it a try. So, so go ahead. Okay. Well, let me let me try. I'll just say one thing. Um, it, it's
3: uh, I, I, his apology is achingly sincere, and I think it's very well thought out. I sort of see three parts to it. So it's maybe I can help clarify what I take him to be apologizing for. One is a basic reality of representation issue. It's supposed to be musical about a Dominican neighborhood in upper Manhattan. something like 90% of Dominicans have some substantial amount of, of black ancestry. So pure realism alone would seem to require more dark skinned actors. So part one of his apology was, he said, in trying to paint a mosaic of this community, we fell short, I'm sorry. In other words, they didn't paint the right picture. They effaced people. They changed the picture, they created invisibility. And he apologizes to people who feel unseen. But you know, there's more to this. In general, you know, actors I think often have, um, they understand that acting itself is, you know, it's the assumption of an identity that's not yours. It's an imaginative act and an imaginative projection. And a general trend of, of modernism in theater for a long time has been to sort of free up actors to play against type, including racial and ethnic types. Um, so, but this actor's, you know, take on identity is now running into a very high value that liberal and progressive ideology places on identity as a kind of cultural and political good that belongs to its owner, that can be and so often has been appropriated. And that's really part two of Miranda's apology. He says, I hear that without sufficient dark-skinned Afro-Latino representation, the world feels extractive of the community we wanted so much to represent with pride and joy. To me, that word extractive is doing a very large amount of work. It tips us off to the, the nature of the of the moment we find ourselves in. It probably not a word that would have been used five years ago, uh, and not even three years ago. And many people will see the use of that word as as progress. Finally, part three, I think, of the apology. One way, I guess the way that I approach this, you know, a white guy, is perhaps simply to say actors of color, cultural creators of color have long been systematically underrepresented in the industry. It's past time to do something about that. So that there's a kind of basic job apportionment issue here you know above and beyond the trickiness of the identity issue and that's part three of what miranda is saying where he promises quote sufficient representation in the future it's like hey there are jobs there's a certain number of jobs people should share equally in these jobs it hasn't been historically the case so i think i i agree his apology was good in that it was he was he showed that he was sensitive to and he was aware of and doing his very best to respond supremely humanely to all these concerns You know, we'll see what happens in the future. But I I think it's apology kind of tracks out the, the chief points of where we are right now with this kind of thing.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think one thing that I I take away from this uh, is—and just, you know, absorbing as much of of the commentary on it as I could—is this is obviously, in all the ways that Sean laid out, a very, very real thing and a very, very real concern. And having spent at least a little bit of time in Washington nights, I was watching—I did have like a tiny little voice in the back of my head watching this movie going, you know, it just doesn't really seem like anybody here looks like they're from the Dominican Republic or of of Dominican ancestry, or it doesn't seem like many people do anyway, and they're all in the background. Um, And there's a way in which I think— if if there were like eight movies out right now or eight movies, you know, big budget movies being released even in 2021 that, that dealt significantly with the Latinx, Latinx experience in America— You know, you could probably get away with this thing because it's very much Lin-Manuel Miranda's take on his growing up in in this neighborhood. He's still connected to the neighborhood. I think he still lives within walking distance of most of the scenes that you see, uh, the Washington Heights scenes you see in the movie. Uh, You know, I mean, it's not like he's some outsider with, you know, his own weird take on it. And you know that at the very beginning, the opening scene, the the character of of Usnavi, uh, now played by Anthony Ramos, says something. Like, just like my buddy Cold Porter says, and he rhymes Cold Porter with cold water, I think, you know, and you're sort of thinking, well, so, you know, I think the guy who's in Washington Heights who's into Cole Porter is Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, and it's, it's very much sort of his vision of his own life. And, and maybe he he therefore, you know, doesn't really include as much of everybody else as he should. I don't think it would be, Sean, as big a problem as it looms as, as I said, if there were like eight other competing big budget projects right now where the Latinx story was being told or the Dominican story was being told in other ways.
2: You're absolutely right, I, I, but that's 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 kind of the issue. It's like um there's a lot of weight being put on this particular movie to to be represent representative, and the problem with that is is that it could never be totally representative. But there's not enough opportunities to tell stories where you could get the wide range of different, like Lin Manuel, Lin Manuel, Randon's perspective, and several others. It's it's so all the weight is being put on this one, and I think part of the reason why there's a disappointment. Not, you know, even a lot of the critics of the movie, just like myself, loved the movie. But I think that part of the reason that there's, there's a disappointment there is because Lin-Manuel Miranda is of Latinx um, descent. He is uh, a person of color. So usually, when something like this happens, it's just like, well, everyone who was involved in production, the producers, the director, everyone was was white. So what could you expect? You know, this like when you, when, but when this finally someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda in you know he produced the movie he created the play he's in the driver's seat so he he has the uh, the the ability to make those decisions so when someone of our culture a person of color is put in that position you kind of would think that they would be the person to to bring these conversations up not that it's it's you know people fall short all the time but it's just disappointing because he was you know if anyone could do it it's him He's, he's he's got as much power in hollywood as someone uh who's as as a new person in Hollywood could possibly have right now he's you know everyone loves him so it's tough I I, I'm genuinely sympathetic to him but I also understand why people are like Rita Moreno's thing about like can't you just wait that's the thing we've been hearing people Mm. of color been hearing since the very beginning can't you just wait no we can't wait and if there were more like you said if there were more stories being told absolutely this wouldn't be as big an issue but this this is the only story being told about Washington Heights and it looks very light-skinned
1: Right. I, I do want to say that uh, this movie took a long time to get made. I, I talked about this last week, and, and and Lin-Manuel Miranda and the other people behind it have said, you know, for a long time they just couldn't get money for it because the, the people who bankroll big movies said, look, there aren't any actors uh, involved in this project who who test well internationally, uh, to which a lot of Latinx performers said, that's because you don't put us in movies. Yes, we don't test well internationally, nobody's ever heard of us, because you won't put us in any movies, and now you're saying we can't do this movie because nobody's ever heard of us. You. Created this problem, but it really and was a real Black problem. Yeah, yeah, it really is a, was a real problem, just in terms of getting money initially. I think, uh, as Sean is suggesting, uh, eventually Lin Manuel Miranda himself he got big enough so that he could really kind of make that happen. All right, we have to stop there before we run out of time. We got to have some time for endorsements on the other side. So hang with us. All right, technical producer for today's show, as usual, Cat Pastor, doing a great job, as usual. Uh, the uh, producer of The Nose, 99% of the time, is Jonathan McPants, and that certainly is the case today. Also doing a great job uh, keeping this all together. Time to make some recommendations, do some endorsements. Uh, Rand, I can tell you are champing at the bit uh, to get going on this. So uh, tell us uh, I- what you're going to recommend.
3: I literally have never been as excited to make an endorsement as I am of this, Edna Lewis's 1976 book, The Taste of Country Cooking. She's one of my top favorite food writers. In fact, one of my favorite writers altogether. And she really belongs in, uh, in, in High on the Hog. Uh, her life is, she was an, a Black woman, and her life is a story of tremendous firsts. She grew up in, in rural Virginia, she was born in 1916, and, and grew up in a small town in rural Virginia that had been founded by her grandfather, who had been a slave. It was a tiny farming community. She left there as a teenager, went to New York City, sort of became a bohemian uh, in Greenwich Village and ended up becoming the first uh, black female chef to run major New York City restaurant kitchens, first at Cafe Nicholson and later at Gage and Tolner, the the vaunted uh, steak place in Brooklyn that just reopened. There was an article by Pete Wells about Gage and Tolner the other day, and it mentions Edna Lewis. Um, And she was persuaded by the legendary Knopf editor, Judith Jones, who was um, John Updike's editor, among others, and uh, Judith Child's editor, to take these recipes that she had and then weave a bunch of personal recollections about being a young person in, in backwoods, black Virginia community. And she, she wove them together in a way that is overwhelmingly beautiful. It's organized these menus around the routines of, of rural life. The chapters are like a spring breakfast when the shad were running or the morning after hog butchering breakfast. And it is like she'll, her father will be plowing the field and she's following him along, picking up sassafras roots that he turns up and bringing them back to make tea out of them. There also are these, these itinerant figures like the traveling hog butcher, and they butcher the hogs you know, a couple times a year. And then she describes, they take the hog stomachs, dry them out and blow them up as balloons and use them as Christmas tree ornaments. Um, and, All right, going so, gonna.
1: I'm just gonna have to stop you there. Just I want to make sure that there's some time left uh, the, the in, in the show for for Sean. Yeah, so uh, definitely a well-recommended uh, book. I think you sold a lot of us on it. Uh, so, <laughs> so Sean Murray, uh, what have you got for us?
2: Um, just sort of piggybacking uh, off of Rand and um, High on the Hog. Uh, Michael Twitty has an amazing book called The Cooking Gene. He was featured in the first episode of High on the Hog. He uh, helped. They made a stew together. Um, it wasn't okra, but they, um, it wasn't gumbo. They made a stew together in the first episodes. in uh, Stephen Satterfield. and it's an amazing book. It's similar to High on the Hog, but it's not about like the influence in American culture. It's more about um, just the history of, uh, of of cooking in the South, uh, in the Old South, and combined with uh, personal stories from uh, Michael Twitty's life. And another book, uh, Jubilee, which is a very similar. It's, it's less personal anecdotes, but it's a it's another story of uh, an American. Uh, Black American Southern cooking um by that book is by Jubilee by Tony Tipton Martin uh, those are the two books i would recommend
1: yeah i believe Tipton Martin is is in the fourth and final episode isn't that yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah
2: yeah yeah what am i i'm an idiot
1: um <laughs> no you're not. Um so um so yeah well those are all great endorsements. Uh, I I'll just quickly say uh, two things. W- one of them is that um kind of I I alluded to it but I want to kind of uh, nail it down here. Um Black Cowboys uh Zara Burnett the podcast uh is it is just terrific. We did a show with uh, him a couple of weeks ago uh, and, and it was really fun to do but I mean really just story after story and really kind of works in a way that's sort of similar to High in the Hog in the sense that it's just, you know, these are just stories you don't know. One-fourth uh, of the cowboys, the the cowboys of the sort of fabled uh, Wild West were were black men, uh, and or in some cases women, as we find out in, uh, in black cowboys. It's just a terrific thing, and just in that s- sense of kind of celebrating parts of, of the story that haven't been told as we're in this kind of retelling uh, of the American past uh, right now, this is just one of the best examples uh, of it. And then I will quickly say, this is the first time I think ever that our favorite author, Ben Winters, is going to have a book out We're probably not going to do a show about it. He's just a great writer. And literally, we've done a show with him about every book he's ever put out. Uh, Because Betsy Kaplan is leaving, we're probably not going to do it this time. The book's called The Quiet Boy. It's out right now. Um, It starts out appearing to be a legal thriller. But as is so often the case with Ben Winters' books, it's really something else uh, entirely. Uh, although it is a legal thriller, it's also very much a family dr- drama. It's also about a race in interesting ways. Uh, and But it's also I, – I can't really say what it really is about without uh, kind of wrecking something about it. So, and, and I would also specifically say that if you like – uh, audiobooks. the audiobook of this uh, is uh, narrated by William DeMeritt, um, a an actor and, and voice talent who's been on this show we did he was on the show we did about audio books and he had, he did underground airline uh, which was one of Ben Winters' books and he's he's really really good at this mm-hmm. I mean his something about his voice and his delivery and everything like that makes it uh, even better so uh, yeah the quiet boy uh, and uh, and also black cowboys and yeah I mean we all recommend high in the hog really I, I I know what you're thinking. "Ah, I don't like cooking shows. Ah, I don't like stuff like that. I don't either. (laughs) This is the show for people who don't necessarily gravitate towards something like that. It's also the show, as Rand has illustrated, for people who care passionately about it. All right. That's it. That's the news for for today. We will have some special Juneteenth programming that will run on Friday. We'll also also run in our noon slot on uh, Saturday. Uh, And then we'll be back with—I'm actually going to be off— Next week, but we've got some favorite shows from the past we've selected for you, and I think you're going to enjoy those too.
0: Talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury,
2: Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah.